0: is hell live from the United States where the law is far too often the crime this is hell the poor suffer the most the poor sacrifice the most the poor put the most at risk whether it's during economic crisis environmental crisis public health crisis or even political crisis The poor are always the ones who pay the most. The poor lead the most precarious lives, yet when a crisis arises, when it finally hits, they are the ones left most vulnerable. The recently passed and, as our guest today will argue, historic Inflation Reduction Act does help the poor, but not to the extent it was supposed to. However, making concessions with opponents of the bill, a $15-an-hour minimum wage and a child care tax credit that could have had a positive and direct impact On the lives of the poor, those were cut, which played a role in ensuring the act's passage. In fact, it's easy to argue that the treatment of the poor in the United States is inhumane, as again our guest will argue later this morning. But when we live under a system that incentivizes the imposition of suffering upon the poor, which leads to profits so the already rich can become more wealthy, is it any surprise that suffering continues seemingly unabated? Considering all the suffering imposed upon the poor, you would think there would be some sort of, I don't know, national campaign fighting for their rights, fighting for their humanity. In a few minutes, we will talk to someone who is part of the leadership of that campaign, theologian, ordained minister, and anti-poverty activist, Reverend Dr. Liz Theoharis. She will be on to discuss her Tom Dispatch article, No More Sacrifices, Mercy Makes Good Policy. Liz is co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. At their website, poorpeoplescampaign.org, it states, in 1968, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and many others called for a revolution of values in America. They thought to build a broad fusion movement that could unite poor and impacted communities across the country. Their name was a direct cry from the underside of history, the Poor People's Campaign. Today, the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for a moral revival, has picked up this unfinished work. From Alaska to Arkansas, the Bronx to the border, people are coming together to confront the interlocking evils of systemic racism, poverty, ecological devastation, militarism, and the war economy, and the distorted moral narrative of religious nationalism. We understand that as a nation, we are at a critical juncture, that we need a movement that will shift the moral narrative, impact policies and elections at every level of government, and build lasting power for poor and impacted people. You can follow the Poor People's Campaign on Twitter, at Unite the Poor. Liz is also director of the Caros Center for Religious Uh, Religions, Rights, and Social Justice at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, which is committed to building a movement to end poverty, poverty led by the poor. Liz is also author of Always With Us, What Jesus Really Said About the Poor, and We Cry Justice, Reading the Bible with the Poor People's Campaign. You can follow Liz on Twitter at Liz Theo, L-I-Z-T-H-E-O. I I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live streaming, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today is Dan Hill. Dan, anything new by you? How have you been, sir?
1: Not a whole lot. We've been decluttering around the house, which is good. I'm an eccentric. I ride Chicago's rich network of alleys in search of, you know, goofy furniture and consumer electronics and I bring it into the uh, apartment with no real exit plan. <laughs> so now I'm using my bicycle for good instead of evil taking stuff to Goodwill.
0: Uh, why aren't you a tenant in the building where I live where everybody is a hoarder? We just got rid of one <laughs> hoarder and now the second and third worst hoarders in the uh, building still remain. So the, everybody in my uh, building does the exact same thing. So do
1: you count yourself among those hoarders? No, hoarders? no, no, no. No, no, I, I you kind of clean. Was,
0: I kind of was, but then once uh, bed bugs hit Rogers Park in the late uh, 20 teens. I was, it. I was like, I do not want to have anything that I you know, find out in the alley to be brought into the house anymore. So decluttering, what do you do with your stuff when you get rid of it? Do you just put it in the alley or are you taking it somewhere?
1: Some stuff does, you know, like go the circle of life route and just return to the alley. Uh, but yeah, no, I took a, I have a made up bicycle trailer. So I went up to Evanston. I was, I was printing up the 30th issue of my comic at the, the copy room in Evanston, which is great.
0: Your uh, comic book, again, is 50 Flip Experiment, and people exactly. can find it at 50flipexperiment.com.
1: Yep, up on Dempster, and then I went on a little west, and I dropped stuff off, off at Goodwill, so.
0: Yeah, so that's basically what we've been doing. We've been leaving it over at the Salvation Army, even though I do not approve of their militant policies. You know, I was in the Salvation Army one day, and I actually heard the workers referring to each other by military rank. That's pretty funny. That is very funny and very kind of creepy. What I've been realizing more and more is uh, I have way too much work to do, and it's piling up fast. There's all the daily and weekly work I need to get done in order to do the radio show and the Patreon podcast. There's the stuff that is not directly connected to the on-air show, the performance of the show, the content of the show. You know, stuff like the website, which needs updating. There's preparations I need to make as we're getting closer to the holidays, which this year hopefully means the return of This Is Hell Holiday. Uh, this is hell holiday office party coming up in december on the first day of winter the winter solstice that's on wednesday december 21st downstairs at the bar downstairs carrie's lounge Uh, but that's in just a little over two months from now even though it seems like the holidays are always very far away they seem to be lurking in the distance like a specter then there's the many holiday celebrations with family i need to prepare for and on top of all that, my home, kitchen, and bathroom were in desperate need of repair when we moved in, and it has only gotten worse, and we moved in 18 freaking years ago, so it's really bad right now, embarrassingly so. Plus, now that the uh, hoarder has moved out from our the first floor of our building, we have to get the common areas in order. In fact, between now and New Year, my uncommon-law wife and I already have every weekend booked but three, which is ridiculous. So I'm seriously thinking about taking a week off from work so I can get caught up on all my freaking work. And aside from work, there's my own personal health care. I still have not seen a dentist since the beginning of the pandemic because mine retired and finding a dentist right now is as hard as finding a veterinarian and not that i need to see a vet although there's nothing wrong with a little deworming every so often it can be rather refreshing but my cats do need to see a vet and despite it being three months since the final procedure my three months of surgery that laid me up this spring and summer i still have yet to have a post-op checkup which is required to make certain everything's working like it's supposed to so yeah taking a week off from work so i can get a whole bunch of work done That sounds pretty good. Dan, other than me considering doing exactly that, not working so I can get caught up on work and my own health care, please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience.
1: This week's question from hell is despite climate change, as well as all the fear, hatred, violence, and disease that permeate our world today, what currently makes you... Happy?
0: Do you have a uh, answer for this week's question from Hal that you can share with us later on today's show?
1: Yeah, I'll share it a little bit later.
0: All right, sweet. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hal wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or took if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st century flash drive. Featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s You can check out all of our merch right now By going to thisishell.com and clicking on support Where you'll see all the ways you can contribute To completely listener-supported This Is Hell Remember, without you, we got nothing So thanks to all of you for your support Special thanks to SLS, Who recently showed their support And picked up a red trucking cap A women's cut This Is Hell t-shirt The This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive and some subvertising stickers. Thank you, SL, and thank you for the very kind personal message you recently sent as well. It really meant a lot to me, but I will keep that off air. You can leave your message or your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com/thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio, or you can email us during today's show. At radio at gmail.com But we must have your answer by the end of today's show When we are announcing this week's winner Following Jeff Dorchin, in the moment of truth During this week's moment Jeff promotes the new slow bile movement Which sounds gross And I have no idea what it means And now a word from our sponsor And as we are completely listener supported Our sponsor is you We do not take any commercial endorsement money We do not make enough profits To be a not-for-profit So we need your support. We got an email from the aforementioned SLS who writes, Hi Chuck, I've noticed despite your invitation for criticism, both constructive and destructive, everyone whom, who writes is, has constructive feedback. I thought I'd step up and fill the gap. Consider remaining, renaming the show, This is Heck. Lots of love. SLS. Uh, So thanks, SL, uh, for the support and the uh, scathing criticism. I'm shocked. Shocked, I tell you. I'm very disappointed and uh, really upset at your suggestion. But again, Thanks for all your amazing support. You, too, can email us at at chuckatthisishell.com, DM us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, message us via our Facebook page. And if you do, we'll likely read your message on air, whether it's constructive or destructive criticism or a guest or topic suggestion. Remember, if we have your suggested guest on air, we will thank you personally during that interview. Coming up, the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris on the sacrifices and risk imposed upon the poor in the United States. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, this week's question is despite climate change, as well as all the fear, hatred, violence, and disease that permeate our world today, what currently makes you happy? We will also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast, exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash Hell, which streams live in his podcast shortly after at 10 a.m. on Thursday mornings. Jeff Dorchin will be delivering this week's Moment of Truth, and we'll tell you who we have scheduled to be on next week's show or not. All that coming up here on This Is Hell, your eyewitness to grief. Yes, this is hell. The way we treat the poor should be considered inhumane, but it's not. The fact that our system insists upon burdening the poor with unnecessary risks and forcing the poor to make even more sacrifices than they already have made so the rich can get uh, richer, I mean, that's just simply cruel. Here to help us have a better understanding of why the poor in the U.S. face such cruelty and maybe just maybe, what Can Be Done About It? Theologian, ordained minister, and anti-poverty activist, Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, is on to discuss her Tom Dispatch article, No More Sacrifices, Mercy Makes Good Policy. Welcome to This Is Hell, Liz.
2: Thanks so much. It's good to be with you.
0: Thank you so much for being on our show. You begin your article by writing in The American Ethos, Sacrifices often hailed as the chief ingredient for overcoming hardship and seizing opportunity. To be successful, we're assured college students must make personal sacrifices by going deep into debt for a future degree and the earnings that may, may come with it. Small business owners must sacrifice their paychecks so that their companies will continue to grow, while politicians must similarly sacrifice key policy promises to get something, almost anything done. This is called having skin in the game, as you know. That is to have incurred risk by being involved in achieving a goal, which is a phrase that is particularly common in business, finance, and gambling, and is also used in politics. What are the politics of only being rewarded if you sacrifice and take risks? What are the politics that are being reinforced when we insist that people have skin in the game?
2: Yeah, I mean, so I think uh, a number of things. I mean, one is uh, this this idea of, of having skin in the game or having to sacrifice to be able to get ahead really only applies to to some. Um, it it doesn't apply to those that are at the top of our society who are making the most money, who are, you know, uh, declaring war um, and and profiting from a, a congressional military industrial complex. Um, Uh, And I think it it plays into this idea that there just isn't enough to go around, Um, you know, the the idea that you really are only going to enjoy it or or benefit from it if if you have skin in the game, well, you know, We live in a world, in a nation that has, that throws out more food than it takes to feed every person across the world that is hungry. You know, in, in cities across the country, there's five abandoned houses for every homeless people and yet uh, every homeless person. And yet, you know, we have tens of millions of people who are in kind of housing insecurity. Um, So, so this notion that there's scarcity um, and that we have to sacrifice to kind of, uh get ahead at all um you know is really uh deeply problematic um and i think it 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 pits us against each other it has us having to kind of rob peter to pay paul um and and folks you know are are really struggling um and as we approach a, a recession and you know continued extreme weather events. And, and just all of the things that that make life not easy for the majority of people these days. um, I think we would do well to to have a a different way of thinking about um, how we can all kind of thrive in this world
0: when it comes to social services a lot of people have argued against the universality of those social services believing that everyone needs to have skin in the game that only in that way will they actually use the social services in a way that is not only best for them but is what's best for their community around them is having skin in the game is that kind of thinking is that part of what might be called an inequality belief system if you will and does that impose on the poor less access to social services?
2: Well, I mean, I definitely think um, we have massive inequality uh, going on. You know, before the the pandemic started, uh, we as a nation had gotten used to people dying from, from poverty. Um, you know, about 250,000 people a year in the richest country in the world, the United States, um, die from, from poverty and inequality. Um, which is about 700 people a day. And, uh, you know, what we saw in the first year, two years of the pandemic were were a number of pandemic era programs that that actually did put forward some of that more universality that you were just speaking to. Um, we had things like the child tax credit. Um, there were surely people that were excluded, um, but it, it was a more universal program and it really benefited a lot of people um, we had. Um, you know the stimulus checks and other kind of pandemic unemployment insurance and we had you know the forgiveness of ppp loans and and all all different different programs that actually were, were about you know trying to to you know a, attack this problem of inequality and and what we found you know if we take something like the child tax credit um was that that really served to be a lifeline for so many um, especially poor and low-income people, um, and and tens of millions of people uh, actually, uh, you know, benefited. More than 10 million people uh, went above the poverty line for for just a couple of months, basically, as as the child tax credit, you know, was was in place. Um, and then once our politicians decided not to extend it, not to make it permanent. Um, you know uh kind of fell prey to to these to this constant kind of debate about deserving and undeserving and and universal programs and and programs that lift from the bottom so that people can actually you know thrive in this society um that threw once once the child tax credit was ended that threw four million kids at the stroke of a, a knot pen um right back below the poverty line Um, and so it means that we 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 can see that there are programs out there there are policy solutions out there that actually do um, make an impact and make a significant impact and yet uh, we seem to find far too few politicians who are willing to actually you know pass those policies and and do what's what's there um, what the solutions are um, to, to address these, these issues. And, and I would say that this idea that um, universal programs, especially programs that are aimed at lifting people in poverty um, into more economic stability, that this benefits for sure the, the families that are living in poverty, but that this actually has an impact on the whole of society. Um, you know, for every, this, this nation, um, this country, United States, Spends or wastes, loses uh, $1 trillion every year because of child poverty. Um, and we would save actually $7 for every uh, dollar spent um, actually eradicating child poverty. Uh, we would save money. Um, if we were to raise wages, um, that minimum wage were to, to go up, uh, you know, 300 and 68 billion dollars would would enter into the economy and that would benefit you know those mom and pop shops uh, those bike places those small businesses in the community and so it's actually the reality that um investing in in poor and low-income people and investing in social programs um actually benefits everybody but but we have uh, uh you know, a lot of propaganda out there right now that that seems to tell us otherwise, but it's not true. It's just, um, you know, lying to us and and keeping us uh, uh, thinking that there are no solutions to these problems where the solutions are here and at hand and and are actually uh, incredibly beneficial to everyone.
0: The aid that was distributed at the height of the pandemic, the point was to alleviate suffering. And as you point out, it did. It did actually work in alleviating suffering. So, to you, what explains that even liberals are starting to turn on that policy decision? I've heard a lot of liberals recently saying, well, you know, if we hadn't given away so much free money, then we wouldn't have the inflation that we have right now and people still arguing to this day with that 1990s belief that they are socially liberal but economically conservative so why do you think people are turning on the aid that actually helped alleviate suffering uh, seeing the the inflation that they have to pay at the supermarket is something far worse far more it's, it's worse suffering than what people experience every day in poverty
2: Well, I mean, I think first we have to we have to just get rid of this myth that that inflation has been caused by a couple of hundred dollar checks that came to folks and this child tax credit or to increase wages. The reason we have inflation is because a few corporations have been just absolutely profiting, um, profiting off of this pandemic, profiting off of, uh, you know, uh, workers that are being paid low wages, but um, are are you know making um, corporations just millions and billions of dollars, and and the the more that um, that folks continue to to buy into this to this lie that inflation and and you know the fact that we are paying for high you know food prices and gas prices is because um, our our kind of community leaders and community members are are you know uh, you know getting a little more money, it's just not true. It's just absolutely not true. Um, and, uh, you know, I, but I think because it's such a dominant narrative, this kind of distorted narrative that, um, that, you know, really doesn't talk about the fact that that poverty and inequality cost a whole lot more than addressing them. Um, and that actually um, we would do well to address these problems from the bottom up. Um, and and not this kind of trickle down approach, you know, that that has been so popular since the seventies, eighties, nineties, but has really never worked. And so, I, I think what we're seeing, especially amongst poor and low income people, and and I think it's really important for us to know that that people who are experiencing some form of poverty or who are one couple hundred dollar, you know, crisis emergency away from from, from poverty and economic ruin, you know, are really a huge number of people, a huge percentage of people in, in this country. You know, we did some work in the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for more revival and worked with some policy folks and ec- economists and found that, you know, if we use the census data about the supplemental poverty measure, actually um, there's 140 million people, 43.5% of the U.S. population who are poor and low income, um, and so that's that's not some small group over there. I mean, that's that's almost half of the country, um, and 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 any nation that has almost half of its people, you know, in some kind of economic precarity, um, is not a strong and vibrant nation, um, especially when we have these kind of programs that that could address. And and so you know, I think we've seen in in recent months. Um, you know, going back to the kind of stereotypes and myths that have been put out for for many decades now, that really blame people for their poverty and say if people just worked harder or prayed more or had fewer kids or you know made better decisions, um, that then that's how folks would get out of, up and out of poverty. When when actually there are these strong social programs um, uh, that that work that really have an impact. Um, and and so I think we, we we would do well to to get away from those those myths um, about who is poor and why people are poor, um, and these ideas that you know we we have to attack these social programs that actually you know lift the burden of poverty and inequality um, away from from people and, and actually make um, make life better for everyone.
0: And that that just made me think about you know why is it so attractive to some why do why do so many want to blame the poor who suffer while uh, corporations get record profits and so i was just thinking is it because if you are critical of corporations then you're anti-capitalist but if you're not uh, but if you're supportive of the poor then you're anti-capitalist. Is it because of uh, an unwillingness to have any kind of criticism whatsoever of the market? Is that what leads to the poor, uh, the attraction for some to blame the poor instead of corporations for their price gouging?
2: Well, I, I definitely think that the, the politicians and, and kind of corporate leaders out there that are, are spreading these lies about, um, about how uh, we can't just afford to actually address poverty and that, you know, people are deserving of the kind of um, situations that they're in, um, you know, is backed by a lot of money. I mean, I'm thinking about someone like Joe Manchin out of West Virginia, a state that, you know, has a lot of poor and low income people um, in it um, and some of the highest um, rates of poverty um, in the country. Uh, who keeps on on doing things like including, you know, attacking the child tax credit and and other kind of social programs by saying, you know, that people are going to, you know, use that money to buy drugs and, uh, you know, making these, uh, you know, statements about how there need to be work requirements and and means testing, you know, like, uh, you know, making sure that that folks fit the, the qualifications. Um, uh, and again, uh, this is, I think, to, serves to, to distract from who really is uh, making a killing off of off of poverty and inequality and, and doing really well. Um, but I don't think that someone like Joe Manchin gets to the position where he's attacking the child cash credit just on his own, I mean, he, he economically um, benefits, um, in fact, you know, Once the Chamber of Commerce had a sense of of what uh, uh, important role Joe Manchin could play um, blocking voting rights, blocking the child tax credit, you know, blocking um, real environmental protections, um, uh, they started paying him a whole lot of money. And and I think we see this across across the board with a lot of our politicians where um, you know, folks make money off of, uh, you know, saying that the system is working. and, and those that, that dare to challenge, um, you know, a society that, again, you know, has the wherewithal, has the resources to really address these issues, um, you know, uh, uh, are still still keeps on blaming um, poor and low income people for for not just their poverty, but for all of society's problems.
0: You were mentioning a quarter of a million people dying of poverty every year. How much are we? aware of the deadliness of poverty? Do we not do as much as we should when it comes to addressing poverty because we are simply not informed, we're not aware of the deadliness of poverty?
2: I think that that is 100% the case. I think that um, it's, it's not going to take education alone, but I think that if our society had a better sense of, of the depth and breadth of poverty, and the reality of, of how much poverty kills, um, I think uh, we we might be in a different position. Um, but but instead, for the past fifty years, you know, the word poor became basically a four letter word, and and we didn't talk about poverty, and we didn't, um, and and so we kind of demonized and stigmatized and um, individualized people um, for for you know not having enough to to feed their kids or to have adequate health care or um, to have you know decent housing or be able to pay their their water and utility bills um, and and so you know for for decades now we've had public policy that um, punishes um, uh, poor people um, and and makes it actually harder for people to, to get up and out of poverty um, than than uh, than not. And so I, I think to, to, to also look at, at the kind of deadliness of, of poverty, I mean, that, that quarter of a million people who are dying from poverty. Um, uh, when we look at, you know, the, the numbers about who has passed away in this um, pandemic, um, you know, uh, between two and five times uh, the number of poor people from poor counties in this country have died from COVID 19 than richer countries, uh, r- richer counties, excuse me, um, where uh, instead of being a great equalizer, um, uh, COVID 19 has actually been a poor people's pandemic. Um, and, uh, and so, on top of us already being accustomed to and comfortable with, you know, 700 people dying a day from poverty. We now have had, you know, more than a million people, um, again, uh, a lot of those folks, a majority of those folks, two to five times more of those folks being poor uh, than richer. And, uh, you know, it just shows that that uh, poor people's lives um, and people of color's lives, you know, do not matter in this society because um, if, if they did, uh, we, we have the solutions and we, we could make different political and policy choices. Um, and, and we could uh, actually you know save save the lives of, of just so many.
0: You were mentioning earlier how some have to sacrifice for success, but then there's others who are born into wealth. If our society is divided into those who sacrifice in order to have any chance at success and those whose success is inherited, how much can? taxing inherited wealth reduce these sacrifices for those who are not born into wealth. Is the solution, or I should say, not say is the solution, to what extent is the solution taxing inherited wealth?
2: So for sure, a fair taxation system um, would go a very long way in addressing inequality and poverty. Um, and and I think uh, connected to that, um, we need to be clear that again, there are solutions to poverty. It, it doesn't have to be here. It's possible to actually eradicate poverty um, in this society, um, and and we would be stronger for it. Um, and and that would include a fair taxation system for um, inherited wealth and 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 for earned wealth, um, but that's earned on the backs of, of low wage workers and 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 others who um, you know. Uh, who actually often give their lives um, so that then um, these these wealthy corporate leaders can can really um, you know have have very um, have very much wealth and riches, um, but also uh, con- connected to a fair taxation system. Um, we we could cut our military budget and make our nation safer, um, and we could actually invest in the kind of programs. Um, And policies that that would actually you know cause the economy to to prosper and and that is things like. um, You know, a child tax credit that is living wages, um, that is you know climate resilient jobs, I mean that all of these different social programs that we could invest in could actually. um, uh, You know more than pay for themselves, Um, in fact they they improve. um, uh, You know. our our overall economy at the same time as improving individual poor people's lives.
0: You write that uh, consider recent policy debates on Capitol Hill as the crucial midterm elections approach. To start with the passage of the Biden administration's Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, as I'll be referring to it throughout this interview. Uh, promises real historic advances when it comes to climate change, health care, and fair tax policy. It's comprehensive in nature and far-reaching not just for climate resilience but for environmental justice too. Still, the legislation is distinctly less than what climate experts tell us we need to keep this Planet Truly Livable. You are not the first person, Liz, to be on our show to make such a statement that the so-called IRA (laughs) is both historic in the way it deals with climate change and at the same time falls well short. If this is both historic and yet distinctly less than what is needed, is this as good as we can expect to keep falling well short of what is needed, but still doing far more than has ever been done before in the past? Because if it is, that does not bode well for any fight against climate change.
2: That's right. That's right, and and I think on the one hand we do have to lift up and celebrate, um, because you know this IRA would have not passed if it weren't for you know some very powerful organizing that grassroots communities and environmentalists and 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 others have been doing for a very long time. Um, I think uh, you know we 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 have to we have to celebrate that we have to recognize that because we have to know where these kinds of wins come from. It's not just that they're. You know come down from on high from our politicians, but it's because you know folks in communities impacted by fossil fuels impacted by. um, You know, climate change um, have been organizing and been calling out um, our society and 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 you know political leaders to do something Um, so we have to applaud it. Um, But, but part of the reason it's so historic is because we have done so little in the past to actually. Um, you know, improve um, our environmental conditions of and, and, you know, to actually help to curb climate change. Um, and, and as, as you said, as I say, as other guests of yours have said, you know, it, this does not go far enough. Now, if we take this as a first step, and we, you know, appreciate um, that, that it, that it, you know, it it is a first step, then that's great. But but it can't be the final, you know, answer to everything. Um, uh, it has to be that that it, it gets built on, and that um, more policies are are passed, and that more measures are introduced. Um, and again, all of this is possible, um, and in fact, deeply popular. I mean, if if we talk to to folks in this country and around the world, and in communities, um, you know, people. People are seeing and feeling the impacts of climate change, um, and and want and need to to see, you know, uh, climate resilient policies. Um, but yet uh, again, you know, enter the fossil fuel corporations and 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 some of the the wealthiest corporations in the in the world, uh, who you know do not want to lose their profits and do not want to be held responsible for for actually, you know, helping to save this earth and everything living in and on it. Um, And so, again, that's where people and grassroots organizing comes in, because um, this cannot be uh, the end, this has to be the beginning.
0: That building upon it is what's really important, but one of the things that really concerns me is that because this legislation doesn't do enough. Then the opposition will say that, well, see, that didn't work. It didn't stop climate change. So that was our one shot at it, and we're not going to uh, do anything else. We can't do anything else about it. It's just throwing bad money or good money after bad. So we just shouldn't continue on this process. How vulnerable do you think that this legislation is based on the idea that it doesn't go far enough, that it will open itself up to opposition and the potential for a lack of building upon this?
2: So I think that always um, when when policies that actually are about, you know, protecting life and and helping people are passed, there's always um, those kind of caveats and and naysayers who who say, but look at this, it didn't solve everything, you know, uh, and are always looking um, for ways to defund these programs and ways to to you know, uh, delegitimize um, the idea that we can actually, you know, have an impact. That's going to, I think, happen no matter what. Um, th- so the question is to, to, you know, community leaders and activists and, and just people of goodwill and conscience is that um, are we going to be able to build the kind of compelling power To to keep on going. I mean, I have a favorite quote from Reverend Dr. King, who was talking as he was kind of launching the Poor People's Campaign in the last year of his life, and he said, "Power um, means, uh, uh, you know, making those in power say yes when they may be desirous of saying no." Right, and so uh, I think that that's kind of the art of the politics that we have to to be waging in this moment, um, including around. the climate is that right now. Um, how are we going to keep getting our politicians and our our um, and our political leaders to say yes? And and um, uh, and part of that really is about us organizing and mobilizing and coming forward with very clear and very visionary demands um, that says that like we we can do this and we have to do this and our lives depend on it and um, we're not going to take. Uh, the nose of the government um, uh, anymore. We're going to keep on on pushing until until change happens, and and that if we look at history, that that is what it usually takes. Um, it takes people pushing, you know, um, from below for us to to kind of get the kind of policy change that um, whether that's on on uh, issues of women's health, whether that's issues of um, you know, LGBTQ issues, whether that's um, around civil and political rights, um, whether it's around anti-poverty policies, like we, we have to kind of push um, in the streets, in the courts, and in the legislature um, to be able to to really um, uh, put forward this vision that, that it does, this is not as good as it gets and that change is possible and, and needed in this moment.
0: And it has worked in the past, but in the past, and it's you know uh, I would argue that the corporations didn't have as much power as they have today. How much more difficult is it to make any difference, to make any change, when we are in the midst of neoliberalism and the in- increasing power of corporations and capital?
2: So for sure, um, the fossil fuel, um, you know, industry and and many of the multinational corporations. Um, you know, have increased power, increased wealth, and increased influence. Um, but uh, if we look at history, at any of the kind of major social transformations we've had to go through as a nation, um, you know, uh, folk have been up against some very powerful and formidable forces um, before. Um, and so, uh, you know, we we must not uh, kind of engage in a defeatism that like that they're so powerful. Um, because, uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, as a, as a Christian pastor, for instance, I, I think about the story of kind of David and Goliath, right. And here you have this huge, huge, huge giant, um, um, whether it's, you know, the giants of fossil fuels, or whether it's, you know, uh, you know, other forms of, 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 of oppression and, and and guess what? Like the, those giants are there, but, but the power of people coming together and organizing have always been able to, to make an impact and, and, and cause those giants to fall. Um, uh, that's, that's the history um, over hundreds or thousands of years. And, and so um, it's possible still today. Um, it's not easy, um, but it's for sure possible. And it's, and it's necessary and, and especially those who are compelled to, to, you know, act for the earth and, and to address poverty and to, you know, take on systemic racism, you know, who, who are most impacted by these issues um, and who are out there, you know, every day trying to push. Um, you know, we, we can um, and we will, you know, see victory. Um, that's, that's, that's what history tells us. And, and that's what the future holds.
0: We are speaking with theologian, ordained minister, and anti-poverty activist, Reverend Dr. Liz Harris. She's on to discuss her Tom Dispatch article, No More Sacrifices, Mercy Makes Good Policy. Liz is co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Find out more about the campaign at their website, poorpeoplescampaign.org. And you can follow the Poor People's Campaign on Twitter. At Unite the Poor, you point out that it's important to note as well that although progress was made on reducing fossil fuel emissions within the Inflation Reduction Act, expanding health care and creating a fair tax system for the poor in this country, Sacrifice zones are hardly a thing of the past. You then cite award-winning environmental reporter at the Huffington Post, the journalist Alexander Kaufman, suggesting, quote, One thing that does seem assured, however, is that the arrival at last of a federal, cl- federal climate law has not heralded an end to the suffering of communities living v- near heavy fossil fuel polluters. And you also add that Rafael Mojica, a pro- program director for the Michigan Environmental Justice Group, solar darity uh, put it the ira is riddled with concessions to the big carbon industries that at present prey on our communities at the expense of their health both physically and economically how much of the ira's success then is based on the sacrifices that will be made by the most vulnerable is this legislation aimed at appeasing the middle class at the expense of the poor
2: so i think you know, for sure, if we look at, at certain provisions, and I don't know all of it, um, but certain provisions that I am aware of um, that activists and, and um, scholars have, have made me aware of, uh, that, you know, at the same time as, you know, curbing um, emissions, uh, they're, they're, they're still, you know, in this act, um, uh, the ability to, to, or in fact, not even just the ability, um, some special provisions to to ensure that that fossil fuel industry is able to, you know, keep on drilling, keep on doing offshore work, um, uh, still getting the permits for 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 many of the kind of uh, very very problematic um, uh, environmental um, you know and energy uh, investments. So you know that you know that that is not that is not a positive thing Um, uh, it's also not a new thing right and so part of part of uh, I think talking about these sacrifice zones is is just like we maybe are not fully aware about the level of of death and despair that is happening because of poverty I'm not sure we're always aware of you know the cancer alleys in Louisiana or the You know, uh, you know, right now folks are maybe hearing a little bit about the poison water and in Jackson, Mississippi, and, um, you know, the continued actual um, struggles that folks in Flint, Michigan are going through but you know there are just communities, communities, communities all across this country, that have been hurt first and worst by environmental injustice, um, environmental racism, you know, fossil fuel, um, and kind of sacrifice zones. and. You know, we we have to, you know, both pay attention to these communities um, and and listen for some of the demands that are coming from them. Um, uh, Not just for those communities, but for for kind of policy going forward. And and again, you know, there's there's some very heroic and visionary organizing happening in many of these very impacted communities um, uh, who 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 folks are, you know, being very clear that that. You know they're they're not up for being uh sacrificed um and that uh they're going to make sure that they're not silent about um the kind of death and devastation happening you know in so many communities across the country you know because of of climate change but also because of the fossil fuel industry and and other um energy um, producers who you know, are willing to destroy the earth and and people's um, lives and livelihoods, you know, again, just to to make a profit. And so, um, you know, there is there is surely much work to be done, but also inspired by the grassroots leadership, you know, um, that is doing so much of that work across the country. And
0: I asked you earlier, how much do we recognize the deadliness of poverty? How much do we recognize the contributions of grassroots groups, like a couple that you point out, the Flint Democracy Defense League and the uh, Michigan Welfare Rights Organization? Whether we recognize it or not, how dependent are we now with so many slashes to social services on community groups for issues including public health?
2: That's right. I mean, what we have been seeing again for decades and saw this, you know, in the early in the pandemic and has continued, you know, as, as the economy actually, you know, uh, approaches another recession and people are, are suffering without, you know, access to, to many services or, or living wage jobs, um, you know, is that, that communities always kind of fill that gap. And now it's, it's too much of a gap to actually fill, but people are doing heroic work, um, you know, whether it's um, helping folks with um, food, um, or or housing relief um, and rent, um, whether it's uh, you know folks you know pooling their resources together and um, either organizing campaigns to, to end medical debt or to you know pay for some of the healthcare uh, needs of, of community members. Um, I mean, folks are are doing really important um, you know protesting of uh, some of these injustices that are taking place, making sure that people. Uh, are aware um, and and then also putting forward the kind of real solutions to those problems that they're protesting and and, uh, and you know this is only kind of picking up more um, as as both these climate issues and you know as continued um, uh, police violence and, and other forms of violence in our communities continue as, as more and more people are thrust into, Homelessness and and deeper poverty. Um, I mean, I think what we see even right now with um, this kind of labor movement um, resurgence of of low wage workers organizing in all kinds of different um, you know workplaces across the country is you know again really what's hopeful I think going on right now and, and what at least gives me you know uh, uh, a lot of faith that that things could. And are going to get better Um, because, again, like these community, you know, like what I would say are the kind of real heroes and heroines of our society that we often just know very little about. Um, Sometimes they make it onto, to you know, some little news segments, or or there might be an article written, or or a conversation with people. But you know, these are the folks that are are really making a difference, um, uh, and who are helping to. You know show what's possible um and, and imagine if if we were to get the the kind of larger political will of society behind you know those visions and those demands um how great things could be
0: you also point out uh, oak, oak flat arizona the holiest site for the san carlos apache tribe their group called the apache stronghold is leading a struggle to protect That tribe's sacred lands against harm from Resolution Copper, a multinational mining company permitted to extract minerals on those lands thanks to a midnight rider put into the National Defense Authorization Act in 2015. Along with a growing number of First Nations peoples and their supporters, it has been fighting to protect that land from becoming another sacrifice zone on the altar of corporate greed. What would you say to those who argue that it's not only corporate greed but human need that drives such projects? That in the end it's not the fault of the corporations but the consumers for demanding the resources they're extracting while others sacrifice their land and risk their lives when it comes to environmental hazard. That it's not corporations fault but it's all our fault. What would you say to that? How would you respond to that kind of argument?
2: Yeah, I mean, so so when in the case of Resolution Copper um, and Rio Tinto um, and these multinational corporations, um, mining corporations, um, you know what what they're doing in Arizona um, and to this again holiest site of the Apache people, um, uh, it is is not just going to impact um, the Apache. Um, but they're they're in the process of basically um, poisoning the aquifers for, for that whole region, um, and uh, and so so this has this has a a devastating impact um, of just of literally poisoning the people and the communities uh, really um, deep and wide across Arizona and the whole Southwest. Um, it, it it yes. People are consumers, and especially in the United States of America, we are um, uh, used to and accustomed to and 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 you know uh, uh, you know constantly getting the, the newest you know technology and inventions and and, um, and products. Um, but uh, the reality about Rio Tinto and, and uh, Resolution Copper, or the reality of, you know, the petrochemical companies um, in Cancer Alley, or, or the reality of, of the, the auto companies that just, you know, absolutely abandoned Flint, Michigan, um, is that those corporations, you know, uh, made a huge profit when they could and then completely abandoned and, and hurt communities when it wasn't profitable for them anymore. And that nobody benefits um, other than those corporations from from how they they uh, you know conduct themselves. And so, um, you know, there are there are some very real human needs out there, um, uh, and 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 we're going to meet those needs um, a whole lot more if we're able to kind of come together across the lines that have historically divided us in this nation, and. Um, put forward, you know, an agenda that that talks about um, what are really those needs around healthcare, around living wages, around social programs that, you know, lift people up, around, uh, you know, uh, climate resilience, around the kind of demilitarization of our communities, around having just immigration policies and, and lots of stuff that, that, you know, are the real issues of our day um, and the real needs that people have. Um, uh, and right now, the way that things are organized in our society, um, and the power that corporations have, um, makes it uh, very difficult for people to actually have their needs met. Um, um, and in fact, um, uh, you know, uh, as long as we keep on um, centering uh, the wealthy and the powerful and the corporations, um, you know, that that causes. Um, more and more kind of death and devastation amongst the rest of us and so um you know uh we're we're in a difficult and dangerous time right now Um, but uh, again there are solutions to the problems at hand um, if we actually put human need um, first and foremost uh, in there
0: what's best for the poor is best for all of us and definitely as we have seen over the last 40 plus years what is best for the wealthy is not (laughs) <laughs> What's best for all of us You write While reports on the passage of the IRA And student debt relief Dominated the news cycle Another major policy announcement At the close of the summer And far from Capitol Hill Slipped far more quietly into the news It highlights yet again The sacrifices that poor Americans Are implicitly expected to make To strengthen the economy Just outside of Jackson, Wyoming One of the wealthiest And most unequal towns in this country, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell committed his organization to take, quote, forceful and rapid steps to moderate demand so it, that it comes into better alignment with supply and to keep inflation expectations anchored. You add couched in typically wonkish Language. His comments made in the equality state of Wyoming may sound benign, but he was suggesting capping wages, an act whose effects will, in the end, fall most heavily on poor and low-income people. This is during a Democratic administration. Why not, instead of capping wages, addressing gouging by corporations through price controls, which even President Nixon did? What do you think is... Uh, putting the uh, Democratic Party on a trajectory of punishing the poor, punishing workers, instead of punishing those who have been making far too much money during a pandemic.
2: Well, I think that you know our our, our system right now is organized to to benefit the the wealthy, and that we have you know both of our political parties that that have really um, gotten away from having to. You know, uh, connect with the the needs and demands of, of of poor and low income people. And so, you know, again, uh, often the solution at hand when when we're approaching something like a you know problems of inflation or whatever is is to to push the economy you know into a recession. Um, you know, that is not gonna hurt uh, the corporations and the wealthy. It's not gonna hurt many of the political donors to to both the Democrats and the Republicans, um, uh, it's, it's gonna hurt, you know, uh, our regular people. And so, you know, in this moment, um, the Poor People's Campaign that I helped to co-chair with Reverend Dr. William Barber, um, you know, is doing massive um, voter mobilization and outreach, um, especially to poor and low-income people, um, talking about, uh, you know, that our votes aren't gonna be just support for, for any of these candidates, but demands that actually candidates, um, you know, do the kinds of things um, that that are about increasing wages and are about, you know, expanding healthcare and are about um, really, you know, uh, speaking to the needs of, of people. And so, uh, you know, it, we're gonna have to, you know, again, force um, and push uh, any of our politicians to to um, to listen to to the people, um, uh, but again, if if we look at history, that it's uh, again another quote from, from Dr. King. He says that it would be the the height of naivete um, for us to expect to, our politicians to implore us for our programs. Right? It's always that. Um, uh, Poor and low-income people, you know, just regular folk out in the in the community, have to 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 implore um, and push um, uh, that our candidates and our politicians actually um, listen um, to those demands. And so, uh, you know, so we'll be reaching out to five million poor and low-income people. Um, we have already touched millions of folks um, uh, because, again. Um, you know, right now, uh, our system, our political system, you know, has, has seemed to ignore the, the power of, of poor and low income people. Um, and so we're going to, you know, really make folk hear us um, in this election and, and in the years to come.
0: You ask, I just got two more questions for you. You ask, is it disingenuous to say that the economy is overheating as if what's being experienced is some strange abstract anomaly rather than the result of decades of disinvestment in infrastructure and social programs that could have provided the basic necessities of life for everyone? We're spending so much Because we let infrastructure go for so long. We are finally paying the consequences for short-term thinking and slashing budgets to get tax cuts, especially for corporations and the wealthy. A lot of people warned this is exactly what would happen if we kept underfunding social services and infrastructure, and they are proving to have been correct. Do you think anyone will ever be held responsible for the poor decision-making that got us here, that there will be reflection and re-examination of the past 40 years and society will correct the error of its ways, or will there be yet another round of denialism about the destructive policies of conservatism, including bicentrist liberals who embrace neoliberalism?
2: So I think that, you know, the pandemic and the early, you know, uh, stages of it, uh, we, we saw people and politicians turn away from, you know, 40 years of neoliberalism. Um, and so I think we, we know it's possible, but it takes, you know, uh, the power of people, you know, pushing. Um, and it takes also, you know, extreme circumstances. Um, so I, I do have faith that we will be able to push forward and um, you know, build up the power and the um, agenda of, of regular people, um, and and I do think we will be able to you know do away with a bunch of these failed neoliberal policies, um, and this deferred infrastructure, and you know the kind of passing all of the profits onto corporations and all of the risks onto the people. Um, uh, but I I think it's it's going to take a, a, a very powerful and very organized movement of people to do that um, and and I, I fear that if if we don't kind of come together across these lines and if we don't keep on um, you know holding out what's possible and and what's needed um, that you know will will go back to um, uh, you know more of the same um, you know this this drive to kind of return to normal um like the pandemic isn't killing thousands of people every day um this 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 idea that like oh we we're just gonna you know be how it was um before COVID 19 even though you know that meant um 700 people dying a day like it's it's a very dangerous mentality um and uh it's one that those in power really benefit from and so that's why we hear it so much but Um, It doesn't serve us. Um, And so therefore, uh, you know, I I think we can change it, but it's going to take, you know, lots of people coming together um, and pushing for what's right.
0: So before I ask you our final question, I just want to thank you so much for being on the show. We had uh, Reverend Barber on the show, I think, way back in like 2007. We'll be sharing that uh, interview next week on our Patreon podcast. But I really appreciate you being on the show today. We've been speaking with theologian, ordained minister and anti-poverty activist, Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris. She's been on to discuss her Tom Dispatch article, No More Sacrifices, Mercy Makes Good Policy. You can find out more about the Poor People's Campaign at poorpeoplescampaign.org. You can follow the Poor People's Campaign on Twitter at Unite the Poor and follow Liz on Twitter at Liz Theo. One last question for you, Liz, and we do this with all of our guests, I promise. Our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You may hate to answer. Our audience is going to re- hate your response. You write how Jesus called for mercy. You write that in Jesus' parlance, mercy meant acts of mutual solidarity and societal policies that prioritize the needs of the poor, which would today translate into canceling debts, raising wages, and investing in social programs. If Christ was about mercy for the poor, how do white Christian nationalists turn that into policies that punish the poor with greater risk and more sacrifice? How bad of a name has white Christian nationalism given to Christianity? And how can that be overcome?
2: So it's a huge question, right? Um, and and indeed, um, this kind of heretical form of Christian extremism um, that blames poor people and queer people and LGBTQ folks and immigrants and women for all of society's problems that kind of pits us against each other and, and you know, uh, uh, feeds us this lie that, you know, that there is one true religion and one true people that it's for, um, you know, this is this is absolute heresy. Um, and uh, it, it still is a powerful movement, a powerful political movement in this country um, that has been able to really, on some level, um, gain real ascendancy, um, obviously in the Trump years, but um, but also maintain that, you know, even in the Biden administration and, and long, long, long before. Um, and so, you know, as a, as a Christian, as a pastor and as a theologian, um, and as a biblical scholar, I mean, I, I, uh, just curl at so much of, uh, what, what is being said in the name of Christianity these days, because, you know, uh, the, 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 Opening sermon of of Jesus when he goes to his hometown in Nazareth he says the spirit of the Lord is upon me um, he has anointed me to preach good news um, good news evangelion right evangelical um, to the Potokos, those who have been made poor by injustice and structures and systems and uh, and so so anyone that is out there kind of claiming to be a Christian and and quoting our sacred texts and traditions and and uh, putting forward an exclusionary, violent um, vision, um, uh, you know, it's 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 really heresy. Um, uh, and so we we have to challenge that. Um, and even people, you know, people of faith, but people also not of faith, um, but who who see that, you know, we we need and must demand justice. Um, uh, we 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 simply cannot allow for. Um, uh, for you know what is defined as the kind of moral values of our day to be um, uh, so distorted, um, and for us to allow for you know those that Jesus cared the most about uh, to be pushed um, to the absolute bottom. And so uh, you know I I really again have have a faith that that change is possible and that it's up to all of us um, to you know to make it so. Um, and, and so, you know, surely invite everybody that's listening in to, to get involved with, with, the poverty, um, for, with the Poor People's Campaign. And, um, you know, if you're interested in some of these kind of resources for people of faith, um, the Cairo Center that I direct, you know, has a lot of them on our social media and our website, um, because uh, uh, <laughs> that, that is not um, the gospel, the good news uh, that Jesus um, actually came to bring.
0: Thank you so much for being on our show. And who knew that the preaching of Jesus Christ uh, uh, aligns with the kind of Emanuel Wallerstein world systems analysis? Who knew? Who knew that those two things completely aligned? Thank you so much for being on our show. I really appreciate you being on, Liz. And now that I have your email address, count on me annoying you for the rest of your life to get you back on the show.
2: I love it. All right. Well, thank you so much. I hope you have a great one.
0: Yeah. Enjoy your weekend that's coming up, too. Appreciate it.
2: Alright, be well
0: Bye. You are listening to God's favorite radio show Prove me wrong This is hell And I think I can be proven wrong today Because Reverend Dr. Liz O'Harris Didn't say God bless you At the end of that interview Really kind of disappointed in that Somebody who has an in with God and all If what you just heard from Reverend Dr. Liz is on how our system burdens the poor and forces them to sacrifice the greed of the wealth can be satisfied, if that was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously hell belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something, or to realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time this week and his podcast shortly after, patreon.com slash thisishell, or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by just visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. And we want to thank listener Neil C., who joined us at this year's This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party back in September, driving all the way from Brooklyn, New York, to join us. So thanks, Neil, for that amazing commitment to the show Neil uh, went to Thisishell.com He clicked on support And sent along this message Here's some dollars In case you ever get God on the show Because that would be an expensive Long distance call Thanks Neil and your support Will definitely help us Afford that phone call But it's a lot more expensive Than you would think The problem isn't the call itself The problem isn't actually Getting in touch with heaven The, the problem is How much time you spend on hold. Who knew, but apparently God's number is listed. Huge mistake, so any jamoke can call at any time of any day, which leads to a Huge backlog of callers. I'm telling you, calling God is like calling the cable or phone company. You might as well put the hold music on speakerphone. so just in case God ever does pick up, you can rush over to the phone, frantically yelling, hello, hello, while fumbling to turn off speakerphone and more than likely accidentally disconnecting yourself with God, which means you got to go through the whole process again. Yep, calling God is exactly like calling the cable or phone company, except... The whole, whole, you know, the hold music, it's a lot more angelic. A lot of harp. So if you don't like harp, I would suggest you not make that call. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far.
1: This week's question from hell is, Despite climate change as well as all the fear, hatred, violence, and disease that permeate our world today, what currently makes you happy? Carrie D. over at Facebook says, Having clear priorities... Kim G says my cat purring on my specifically denim-covered lap.
0: (laughs) You need denim because their claws will go through almost anything else.
1: I need a couple layers for my cat. Oh, do you? Yeah. Three is the magic number. (laughs) Philip A exclaims multipolarity. All right. Eric O says T. The aforementioned Neil C says sleep. Over Twitter away, we have some more responses. Remember, we're... We're saying, things are bad, what makes you happy? Ahmad Salaj says, color-coding my social justice books.
0: I liked your uh, more brief version of the question. (laughs) Things are bad, what makes you happy?
1: Yeah, how do you get your kicks (laughs) in this crazy world? (laughs) Frack Lou Elmo says, schadenfreude. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Text of the matter says, I think all I have left... Is going to the bathroom. I'm sure they're already working on how to commodify <laughs> that little oasis text. I feel like we're already there. If you ever tried to take a leak downtown,
0: that's you're paying. Yeah, you're definitely gonna yeah. be paying. Somebody is commodifying that already. It's
1: non-trivial. Yeah. Stephen Andrew Shock says the MLB playoffs. All right. Jeez. What do we got? Rob's zombie. <laughs> says this question caused a late night existential crisis I hadn't prepared for the most hellish question in a while, and uh, stray shine says commiserating over a coffee that makes sense. Tangent girl says cat dog videos, <laughs> cat slash dog videos. Do they both participate in that? Amalgam, yeah, yeah I don't maybe. Don't know. Don't know. And finally, uh, Pravo Macher says I was going to say singing and walking in nature, but then this thread came along. Thank you.
0: <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell will be announced after Jeff Dortch in the Moment of Truth, which is coming up, and that person will win your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, but you got to do it right now. you got to send us your answer to this week's question from hell right now go to facebook.com slash this is radio tweet at us at this is this is radio email us right now at this is hell radio at gmail.com again we will have this week's winner following Jeff Dorch in the moment of truth during this week's moment Jeff promotes the new slow bile movement whatever that gross thing is keeping it real real deep in debt since 1996 this is is hell, and if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at Patreon.com/slash This Is Hell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash This Is Hell, and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams weekly makes sense, and his podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell. On Thursday's Patreon, I will be talking about an, another, another important day in my life that is approaching, and that is the anniversary of my relationship, whatever you want to call it, with my uncommon-law wife, my non-wife, the anniversary of me being her unhusband or unsbend, if you will, and a lot of people won't use that word. So I'll not only be revealing exactly how long we have been together, the kind of information you just got to keep behind a paywall like I did with my age when talking about my birthday on Patreon earlier this month. But I will also be revealing my secrets of a successful or sort of successful relationship or whatever it is that we've been involved in for so many years. It's the do's and don'ts, the wish I had nots and the won'ts and everything in between. I'm not saying our relationship has been perfect, far from it. But it has worked at least for this long, which is saying something when you find out How long it's been since we first hooked up, which is basically what we celebrate. But to find out exactly what we celebrate and why and how it has gone on for so long and how the whole thing uh, uh, could have easily been completely derailed, subscribe to our weekly Patreon podcast. Again, patreon.com slash hell. Also on Patreon, we will be playing an interview from nearly 17 years ago. To the Day, a conversation we had on October fifteenth, two 2007, when we spoke with William K. Black, author of The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One, How Corporate Executives and Politicians Looted the SNL Industry. Bill is the former director of the Institute for Fraud Prevention during the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s and 90s, when nearly a third of all savings and loans went out of business. As the TV journalist Bill Moyers described the situation, William Black accused then-House Speaker Jim Wright and five U.S. Senators, including John Glenn and John McCain, of doing favors for the SNLs in exchange for contributions and other perks. The Senators got off with a slap on the wrist, but so enraged was one of those bankers, Charles Keating, after whom the uh, so-called Keating Five were named, he sent a memo that read, in part, Get Black, Kill Him Dead, Metaphorically, of course As for Bill's book The Best Way to Rob a Bank Is to Own One The publisher describes it as An expert insider's account Of the savings and loan Debate and debacle of the 1980s William Black lays bare the strategies that corrupt CEOs and CFOs in collusion with those who have regulatory oversight over their industries used to defraud companies for their personal gain. Recounting the investigations he conducted as director of litigation for the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, Black Foley reveals how Charles Keating and hundreds of other SNL owners took advantage of a weak regulatory environment to perpetuate and perpetrate Accounting fraud on a massive scale He also authoritatively links The SNL crash to the business failures Of the early 2000s Showing how CEOs then and now Are using the same tactics to defeat Regulatory restraints and commit the same Types of destructive fraud And who knew little to nothing would ever Be done about it and that We still suffer from the lack of of Regulation that Destroyed banks 35 years ago Oh yeah Bill Black did that's right He told us on the show But the only way to hear all of that is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon. If you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get access to over 300, over 350 past Patreon podcasts with, with each and every one featuring a monologue by me, and a classic interview that currently are, neither one is available anywhere else online. Think about that. That's like a couple of years of This Is Hell for free. A couple of years of This Is Hell that you have yet to hear. That's again at patreon.com slash hell Coming up, Jeff with a moment of truth. The rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll be announcing this week's winner and telling you what's happening on next week's show. Live from Hangover Country, This Is Hell. Dan, I know you have Hefe on the line.
1: What?
3: The Slow Bile Movement. As if I inhabit some perch on a lofty peg, I often encounter behavior intended to lower my peg level. The battle of peg altitudes is a continual, playful obsession between friends in Hollywood and, in various degrees of overtness, most places where people are friends. Perhaps due to my arrogance, i well deserve to have my dignity slashed why should i a failure by all measures that count a liability and a burden to all be allowed to nurture within my soul a thing as precious as dignity Do I not understand that among the prized rewards for being a meritorious human being is the simple right to exist? Do I not on a daily basis witness the casual disregard with which human beings who have not merited a home are left to the bullying of police and the abuse of the elements? What right have I to my opinions, to express them, to hold them? By what effort have I earned anything I possess at all? Do I believe that merely by existing I ought to be accorded the courtesy one wouldn't give a, a crumpled Powerade bottle on the shoulder of the highway? By what graciousness of anyone's heart should I be allowed to live? I have gathered to me no family, one in the competition for love partners, a contest by which one's intrinsic worth is measured. I have no employment. My writing and art are barely appreciated and certainly do not earn me a lot of money. Wealth, of course... In this milieu of shallow fashion called Hollywood is another mark of the worth of a person. I once had an industry insider tell me in relation to a mutual acquaintance, he can't do anything for me, so why should I continue being friends with him? Here in Hollywood, fealty to fame lies everywhere as thick and viscous as if a zombie army of slobbering polyamorous fans had left a coating of saliva over every surface a celebrity might have brushed against with one body part or another. People here, as in most lands under the sway of extreme capitalism, love things and use people. Although, Here, their professions of love for this or that rich person often gush in cataracts of the same fame-worship saliva found coating their entire stunted world. I must qualify all this by admitting to having encountered a great deal of generosity here, as well as integrity and artistic excellence. Most of it has been inextricably mingled with less stomachable features of human behavior, naturally. In all of us, virtues swirl and intertwine with less wholesome aspects of ourselves. As I'm sure you can gather, I am no model of anything even indecent society might prioritize as virtue I am petty, shiftless, unattractive, ill-tempered, unjustifiably arrogant, foolish, stubborn, selfish with my time and affection, and suffer from sleep apnea, which I desperately want to spell apnea for pretentious reasons. Whatever crumbs of virtue I may inadvertently have maintained are trampled under the rampaging hippo herd of my myriad more obvious faults. I even despise myself. There are two reasons I haven't ended my life. Cowardice in the face of pain and the effect such an action would have on others whose happiness I care about. It is quite a chasm leaping assumption on my part, indeed, to posit that there might be any negative outcome from my erasure, but I suppose that is what makes me intolerable. Perhaps you'd thought civilization had moved beyond this notes from underground type of splenetic confession. And you would have been correct. The erstwhile fine art of spleen has been commandeered by emotionally adolescent mass shooters and the plethora of fear-stoking demagogue wannabes egging them on. They have discredited and cheapened discontent on the way to hijacking it for themselves. This has meant that, in order to distinguish itself from its fattest usurpers, actual resistance to social indoctrination has had to make itself ultra-specific. In the marketplace of reaction, one must adopt a quickly understood label. Those whose reaction runs counter to white supremacy and extreme capital hegemony divide themselves into factional identities for ease of consumption. When people fight for women's reproductive freedom, we call ourselves feminists. When the people fight for the right to collectively bargain or organize for decent treatment by our overlords, We call ourselves union activists or labor activists. When the people fight for black people to be able to live without being controlled, coerced, beaten, and killed by police, we call ourselves anti-racists. When we do the same for unhoused or poor people, we label ourselves accordingly. Opposite us, those in support of capital property and privilege domination, lie to their gullible audiences' faces, lumping their enemies together as social justice warriors, a sarcastic epithet which may backfire in the long run by unifying the otherwise fragmented resistance to these xenophobic fascists. But there are still a few of us spread across those groups in a love-hate relationship with the very nature of the world. We do it in the old-fashioned, craftsperson-like way, in the manner of the young Dostoevsky or Gorky or the dissolute Poe, the consistent Baudelaire, the celebrated Villon, Saad, and Kathy Acker. We practice misanthropy and antisocial philosophy in a more artisanal manner. We represent a re-emergence And that reemergence is, I hope, a trend. Let's call it the slow bile movement. There, it is branded. You do not have to merit being in the slow bile movement. Either you're doing slow bile or you're not. There's no gatekeeper other than yourself. In the farm-to-table negativity movement, you are the hen, the farmer, the chef, the waiter, and the diner. Who else would have you? From whom else do you require certification? This is no endeavor for a mere contrarian, au contraire. The agenda of the contrarian is to explode unexamined cliché irritants with devastating logic. But logic destroys the bouquet of slow bile. Logic is too busy, too hectic, too rushed. The nectar of slow bile is spoiled by such fussiness while at the same time too fussy to survive being shaken about with didactic turbulence, and logic is what bolsters the lies of the demagogues, logic based on false premises. Slow bile is organically poetic. It germinates in the spleen, which is a silent glade in one's soul. Sprouts like grain, malting and fermenting in a mash. Blooms and degasses like pour over coffee grounds in their initial thirty-second exposure to water, which you should really be allowing for if you want the genuine dense flavor of the bean to come through. Slow bile must be given time, warmth, and humidity to rise. Its buds, must not be rushed to blossom with tricks of light, contrived temperature changes, or additions of instant-rise yeast. These fleurs de mal must blossom in their own time, fill the sinus cavity and cranium with their lily aroma, make redolent the atmosphere of mutual antagonism between the self and the worlds the self habituates on its rounds, imbibing. Haunting, shoplifting, seeking blood to slake its vampire thirst. The blossoms, like the smell of blood, awaken the senses. Such artisanally conjured poppies grant the mind's eye. Eschatological apocalypses, which the mere demagogues, scolding preachers who specialize in frightening little children with petty bedtime doomscape fairy tales, can never assimilate into their puckered-ass paradigm. Slow bile is simple and honest it cannot be said to arise from any sophistry of didactic logic it is not a lie it often commences as an admission of weakness with the potential much further down the road to ripen into a putrid swamp worth wallowing in to come into bilious fullness the dank hive of emotions and impressions must be allowed to fester and swell into an infestation of crawling, swarming despair, an entire insect civilization unto itself. It turns its compound eyes away from civilization at large, though never rejects it fully, tapping those cosmopolitan veins from which to feed its funereal fecundity. For unlike the morbidity worshipped in the death cults of its commodified cousins, the death in hearing and slow bile is paradoxically fertile. Demise is renewal. While it rots, it grows, a fetid cloud bearing aloft newborn worlds, destined to rain down the plagues of consciousness, of fire, of blood, of frogs, of locusts, of worldly attachments, of life itself, upon an earth denuded and raped by her ravenous exploiters in their money lust, their egotism, their shallow, brittle vanity. That vain looking-glass can have no other fate than to shatter into jagged shards that must alter. Ultimately, open their admirers arteries and bleed them out slow bile will steadily win the race or suffer destruction in the attempt this has been the moment of truth
0: good day this is how office hours our weekly meet and greet that's actually a drink and think happen every Wednesday downstairs at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood from 6 p.m. till ten p.m. You are going to be in town here. I know in Chicago visiting friends as well as in Michigan uh, seeing Indeed. family. So, uh, do you know? Is there a during your in, looking into your itinerary? Is there a Wednesday where you will be joining us for office hours?
3: I hope to be there next week.
0: Oh, all right. So on so, the like 19th, I come
3: in on the what now? 19th on the 19th. I fly in on the on Tuesday the 18th. I'm going to get up early, come in from Oak Park. on the train, on the green line and the red line and the 155 bus and end up right in front of Carrie's Lounge. Sweet. And so you'll be here. Show up. Awesome. I'll be there and then I'll either take a nap or wander around and come back for, you know, when it's drinking time. (laughs) Right. And thinking time.
0: And drinking and thinking time and meeting and greeting time too.
3: So, oh, my uh, if, goodness. I can't wait to meet If read.
0: people are listening on our to our world broadcast premiere, which happens every Saturday morning, that's going to be next Wednesday on uh, October 19th. Jeffy will be joining us during office hours and come by this evening as, I believe, the journalist Carrie Leiterson, who recently was on the show to talk about her New Republic article on the historic reparations program in Evanston and whether that is reparations or not. I believe she's joining us. This evening. So looking forward to seeing Carrie this week and seeing you next week at uh, office hours, Jeffy.
3: Excellent. I look forward to seeing everybody. I wish Dr. Reverend Liz was going to be there. She was great.
0: Yeah, she was really great. And it reminded me of Sherry Honkala and uh, her work that she does for poor people as well in the, what's it called? The Kensington Family Workers Movement. I can't remember exactly what it is in Philadelphia. So look up Sherry Honkala, H-O-N-K-A-L-A as well, who helps out the poor.
3: So there you go, Jeffy. All right. Until next time. I'll do time. that. Until next time. Didn't? Were'n't you listening? Stay be- I can't stay beautiful. I'm repulsive. <laughs> stay beautiful. Oh my god! A guy at coffee yesterday. Yeah. Was it yesterday? No. Sunday. He announced to the entire table. I was. I was at a different table, but I went over to the the questionable table and just said, "I'm. I want to say goodbye. Goodbye, everyone." And this guy goes, he just starts in on my weight. Wow. And it was just like you know you're getting to that age and you know you, you, it's hard to lose that that weight and you are obese and people were like stunned and they were like so, some very nice girl who is uh she's she's uh got a journalism uh, what do you call those things where you don't pay the person
0: uh, internship
3: <laughs> internship at uh, kpcc um she was like i think you look good And this guy was just like, he's obese. He's obese. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Wow, I got a health tip for you. (laughs) Keep your mouth shut. (laughs) Exactly. You look
0: Lucas piece of crap. All right, Jeffy, until next week, stay beautiful, my friend. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from our listening audience and share with us the rest of our listeners' answers if there are any more.
1: Sure. This week's question from hell is despite climate change, as well as all the fear, hatred, violence, and disease that permeate our world today, what currently makes you happy? We have one response. Or as you
0: summarized earlier.
1: Yeah, things are awful. What what makes you happy? Yeah, what makes you happy? (laughs) Uh, Steve C. uh, gets one in under the wire, and he says the music of John Coltrane. That's a good answer. That's a really good answer. Yeah.
0: So the answers I liked most were Braden S. saying... Toilet humor, and because he put that second U in there, I know he's saying it with a classy British accent, or maybe Canadian accent. And is that accent classy? At text of the matter saying, I think all I have left is going to the bathroom. Speaking of toilet humor, I'm sure they're already working on how to commodify that little oasis. Rob Zombie on Twitter saying, this question caused a late-night existential crisis I wasn't prepared for. The most hellish question in a while. At Stray Shine saying commiserating over a coffee. At Immortal Tortle saying I'll be dead soon, which again, contradictory and contrarian as Immortal Tortle is immortal. Frack Lou Elmo on Twitter saying schadenfreude, which is a fantastic answer. Not All Ginger saying movies about wealthy people on disastrous vacations, which I think is... That's all that Lindsay's been watching since the last time she was on the show. And at Memory Hole saying, making eyes at you, good looking. That makes this week's winner to the question from hell, despite climate change, as well as all the fear, hatred, violence, and disease that permeate our world today, what currently makes you happy? This week's winner is at text of the matter, who said, I think all I have left is going to the bathroom. I'm sure they're already working on how to commodify that little oasis. And you can bet they are. Congratulations. At text of the matter, you have won your choice of whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want. All you have to do is send us an email telling us which piece of merchandise you want, and we will get it in the mail post haste. My answer to this week's question from Hell Well, uh, despite climate change, as well as all the fear, hatreds, violence, and disease that permeate our world, what currently makes me happy? Well, it's the subject of this week's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, and that is, what makes me happy is my girlfriend, and we are celebrating our anniversary, which I'll be telling you the secret of keeping a relationship going for, well, I'm not going to tell you how many years, although it is an impressive amount. You will have to be a Patreon subscriber to hear why and why not our relationship has been so successful or not, at least from my selfish point of view. And I'm certainly not going to have my girlfriend review what I'm going to be writing for tomorrow's Patreon uh, monologue because I don't want to get in a fight. But my girlfriend still makes me happy despite the horrors of the world that surround us. And it's likely not only her, but, you know, love in general, love for family, for friends. In fact, that's likely the only thing that makes me happy. That and the stupid radio show, which I'm doing right now. And I, do love to do. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. Dan, unfortunately, I have no freaking idea who will be on next week's show. Again, if you can't wait to find out, I will hopefully be revealing next week's guests on the Patreon podcast because as of right now, despite several people saying they are interested in being on This Is Hell next week, nobody has confirmed. They said, I'll be doing the show. I said, okay, great, all we need is your contact information At which point those conversations are stalled right now And I'm having several of those online So we'll be announcing, hopefully we'll be announcing Who's going to be on next week's show on tomorrow's Patreon podcast If you ever want to know what's happening on the show and you, A great way to do that is with the Patreon podcast Not only do I tell you news about the show That we haven't released to our entire listening audience But stuff that's going on behind the scenes on the show as well Thanks to this week's producers, Dan Hill, Lindsay Gorey, and Richard Norwood. Thanks to Sebastian for helping with this week's show, Sebastian Vuppert. And congratulations again to Sabin Chloe and everybody here at This Is Hell wishes you the best in your married life, which you will be celebrating this weekend. But again, if you want to find out how to have a happy unmarried life, you got to subscribe to this week's Patreon podcast. Also, thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. And to Alexander Jerry and Theron Humiston, just because. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when it's how to have a happy unmarried life and a 2007 talk with a fraud investigator who discovered that the best way to rob a bank is to own one. So before we go, during our conversation earlier this week with Lindsay, who not only works here on This Is Hell but also sells mushrooms at farmer's markets across Chicago— psychedelics and chocolate bars came up. This led to quite the outpouring of information from listeners on Twitter. The left isn't divided, the center is, tweeted, those chocolate bars with shrooms in them seem to get the job done. 24 tweeted, I'll recommend you to this plug. She's got DML, or DMT, LSD, chocolate bars, and other psych products. Dina tweets, for shrooms and other microdosing trips, I'll re- recommend you too. And then Dina offers a link. Dina adds on Instagram, he's a mycologist and will guide you. I always buy from him. Finally, London Cowboy asks via Twitter, can I link you up with my supplier? Who knew that getting psychedelics is so easy to do online? I did not know. And had I known, I would be tripping by now. I hope to see all of you tonight during our meet and greet that's really a drink and think. This is Hell Office Hours, which happen every Wednesday evening from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. at Carey's Lounge, located in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood at 2251 West Devon Avenue. That's This is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday evening from 6 to 10 at Carey's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. The only way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows is by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, and focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and then saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is
2: on my butt.
3: (laughs) Ah. My demon talks to me in
2: profanity like a sailor.
3: And my demon tries to knock me down